Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. This episode contains a first-person account of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, and attempted suicide. These are incredibly important topics that need to be discussed, but we want our listeners to be aware that the conversation can be very frank at times. If you or someone you know is in crisis, there are options available to help you cope. Contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 273-8255. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and Podcast Editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. War leaves scars. Physical scars on combatants are visible, even obvious. But the scars on the minds and hearts of veterans and on the societies they serve are no less deep and damaging when they are invisible to the naked eye. Jan Scruggs knows a lot about the scars of war and about the challenges of healing both individuals and societies. A Vietnam veteran himself, he volunteered to fight. Then, after struggling with his own post-traumatic stress, he volunteered again to become the driving force behind the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington. He has been working for decades to deepen public understanding of the challenges veterans face, and we are honored to have him with us today. Welcome to A Better Peace, Jan Scruggs. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So, Jan, I want to I start to talk, talk about your work with the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. How did you become this uh, force behind getting that memorial built and, uh, and to make it what it is today? Well, the short answer is I just did it. I mean, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Uh, did not know how to uh, raise money, get legislation through Congress. Did not even re- know there was a requirement to have legislation. I just said, I'm going to build a memorial with the names of all the casualties from the Vietnam War to help the veterans to recover. And on a larger sense, to help society recover from a very traumatic uh, and divisive time. Well, and so yeah, I, I'm I'm curious about you know from based at, based on your own experience, what was it about the names that uh, that became the, names, the focus of your memorial? Yes, the names really flowed from a guy named Carl Jung. Carl Jung worked for a guy named Sigmund Freud, and <laughs> Carl Jung pointed out that societies are collectivities, and there are certain things that unite them. They may not be aware of them, but they unite them. And uh, that there are uh, archetypes. The archetype of the hero is the most powerful archetype for a society. And what is a hero? Well, this is the guy who goes out and he sees Hercules over there on the on the ridge. He grabs his tomahawk and says, all right, Hercules, let's go for it. And uh, he comes back he wounded and battered, but he has proven himself. He has bled to keep the other people safe from Hercules. And uh, so the theory theory was basically that the names would would help raise public awareness and help us raise money and, and public relations momentum. 
And yet, as as we, we talked about this beforehand, right, the the decision to go with Maya Lin's particular design um, was not without controversy. Right, People don't necessarily even remember how deep that controversy was. But how did you yeah. deal with that in uh, as part of the preparations for the movie? Well, we uh, Maya Lin is a fascinating, great American. She grew up in Athens, Ohio. And as she says, she once said to me, she says, I'm as Chinese as apple pie. I mean, you know what I mean? She's American. Her parents came here to escape communism uh, when Chiang Kai-shek lost, the, uh, lost China. Both are, were professors of English. Uh, and uh, they come from a family in which her grandfather was one of the first people from China to be educated in, in England. So this is a real gene pool of brilliant people. But uh, she had this design for the memorial, which had two large wings of black granite. Black granite, not the type of, type of black you're thinking about, like on your chair or something. The type of black that you can almost shave in. So when you look at the memorial, you go, get close to it, and then you touch the name, and you can see your own face there. A very deep, heavy psychological experience for the veterans. But the design became extremely controversial. I mean, it was bad. Everyone joined the, joined the fray. The Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, networks, TVs. And uh, th this controversy was basically, look, you have put together a black gash of shame and sorrow. Accidentally, through your design criteria, you have created this monster and hell will free us over before we allow this to be built. And these were substantial people. This was a United States senator who, you know, from Alabama, Jeremiah Denton, Medal of Honor recipient, I mean, guys like that. And I had my team. I, I had William Westmoreland. I mean, this guy was not the world's greatest general, but I'll tell you what, he's a, he was a, a powerful ally for sort of what he stood for, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, listen, we had a bunch of graduates from West Point, the class of 1966. These were the really smart ones who they sent to Harvard Business School. <laughs> After they got out, they could go to Vietnam and ride an helicopter with the, or something. And uh, they were helping me manage this. There was a guy named Bob Kimmett. Bob mm -hmm. Kimmett, West Point graduate, U.S. ambassador to Germany. I mean, this guy really has his act together. He worked in the Reagan administration for the National Security Council. A guy named Tom Schull, who now runs AFES, the, you know, the military exchange service. Uh, he was... Uh, a White House fellow working directly under uh, James Baker. So all the opponents who had Ross Perot in their corner and, and James Webb of the Naval Academy, all good people. There's not bad people. Right. They thought they were right. And uh, so they had their allies. We had our allies. And uh, we basically beat them just by hair. At the very end of this five-month battle of name-calling, we were ready to get the construction permit. And I'm, I was told 
that Secretary James Watt would not give us the construction permit because he had received 22 phone calls from Congress. Hmm. That's how good these guys were. We were both good teams. They choreographed this thing so that Watt would be afraid to give us the construction permit. Tom Schull went in there. He's another Harvard West Point guy. And he basically told this guy, Bill Horn, uh, Assistant Secretary of Interior, look, you got to give us a construction permit. You have to give us a construction permit because this is what the president wants. Just give us the construction permit. And the guy just said, okay, I'll do it. So that's how we got it. The whole, had the construction permit not been issued, and this was April, actually March of uh, 1982, had it not been issued, my lens design and me and everything else would be forgotten. This never would have been built. It's a, it, it's amazing to think about how what a near a near run thing that was. Have you ever since since the memorial has been built and since it's become this powerful symbol of memory and reconciliation, have you ever had a chance to speak to any of your harshest critics? Did you ever meet Senator Denton? Uh, did you ever talk to uh, uh, to Jim Webb? I mean, these are guys who I mean, yeah. I'll say Jeremiah Denton survived the Hanoi Hilton, right? So Jeremiah Denton's yeah, an yeah, American yeah. hero. But yeah. but uh, did did any did Stop anybody Dale. ever come back to you say to you, uh, you know, Jan? You know, I was wrong to call it a badge of shame. It's actually something, or was it just was there just sort of silence from your critics? Yeah, the, I think it was more like, uh, you know, I have had a chance to. We can't argue with the fact that this is really popular. Sure. No, none have said, "Well, I was wrong to fight." Well, they weren't right to wrong to fight about it. They right. were right, completely right to fight, fight to fight about it. Sure. Some of their their uh, strategies and techniques were outrageous. And uh, after we got it built, a year later, they went after us again. They had a guy who was a, or a Peabody Award winner alleging there were vast financial uh, expenditures that were unaccounted for and all this sort of thing. And then in 1993, right after the uh, the 10th anniversary of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, Peter Jennings went after us went after me for like five months and finally they aired it. And by then we, we, we had beaten him into a little bit of a pulp. (laughs) So, uh, but I mean, this desire for revenge (laughs) was, is not the kind of characteristic that should be, uh, uh, celebrated. <laughs> well, so I want to take a step back then, because I the, the the story of the memorial. Anybody who's been to the mall has been to it, right? They know the feelings that they get when they see it, and to realize that it's a, as a historian, I always think, right? People need to remember, right? That things things didn't have to turn out the way that they did, and to realize that before they turned out the way they did, nobody knew how they were going to turn out. So you know, that's you know, these are these are important things to keep in mind. But let's talk a little bit about your personal history too, right? You know, how did how did a uh, corporal from Vietnam end up leading this uh, battalion of West Point graduates to create <laughs> this uh, this memorial? Uh, well, I, I, I was on the list to be an E5, so. Okay, well, all right, well, <laughs> let, we'll let the record show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they promised me I have a good career. I might actually get an E7, but uh, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, right after, I kind of went in at the end of the Tet Offensive in, in 1968. And uh, I was uh, put with an infantry unit, the 199th Brigade. I, went, I was an 11 Charlie, 11 Bravo rifleman mm-hmm. and mortar guy. And uh, May 28th of 
I mean, this is going to strange story, but this is <laughs> not making it up. I've got witnesses with me, <laughs> but uh, we were uh, May twenty seventh. We, we got ambushed. Both both of our both of our medics got shot. One through the through the neck, who survived. The other one went through the eye into the brain and had. He's completely. I mean, you know, he's, he's brain damaged, and uh, we lost uh, ten other guys. And, and it was just a long three-hour firefight. I had never seen combat before. I had no idea how, how hectic and unorganized it was. And then I was uh, – the next day I said, look, I know I'm going to get shot today because there's a lot of enemy out there. And uh, I'm going to take my army poncho. I'm going to put it behind my pistol belt because if I get hit back there, it will stop the shrapnel. And I was the only guy in Vietnam – there were 500,000 people who put their pistol belt, who, who put the poncho around their pistol belt. Well, I'm sitting here, you know, this fighting breaks out, machine guns, AK-47s. I'm maneuvering around, and uh, I get, I'm about to move behind a tree. I move behind the tree, and as soon as I did, the place I was sitting at turned into this big hole. And then two other guys came, with three other guys came, and... <laughs> He says, they're throwing grenades from the trees. So we're all firing up at the trees. And uh, they weren't. Actually, there was an RPG team about 75 feet away from us, just kind of zeroing in. <laughs> and, uh, the next time they fired, uh, they got me really badly. The other guys had to retreat to get away from the, the fire. One guy dropped his weapon and started running through the jungle. Mm. <laughs> like, like that's how you become a prisoner of war. And... Uh, I laid there and I said the the Lord's prayer, and I'm I'm it's like I'm out of my, out of body, you know, and I'm lifting up, I'm kind of lifting up into the trees, and I, <laughs> I said, I'll tell you what, God, if you get me out of this mess, I'll do something really great. <laughs> I mean, that's why I said he had nothing to lose at that point. So, well, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad I'm glad the Almighty took you up on that offer, <laughs> but. Um, uh, that, uh, and, and so you served, you served a, a year long, two year tour. How long were you in Vietnam before you came back? 12 that, months. 12 that months. was enough for me. That was enough. And then, and then you came back and I, and I hope you don't mind my asking. I want to talk a little bit about this, the problem of post-traumatic stress, right? And, and when you speak to veterans or about veterans today, how do you relate your own personal experiences with dealing with post-traumatic stress? I, I just tell them, uh, what, <clears throat> what happened to me when I came back uh, within a couple of years, I was sort of self-medicating myself with, you know, pot and sure. beer, you know, nothing uh, awful. But I was uh, going nowhere. And one day in 1972, I was going through college, working my way through as a janitor. And uh, I said, you know what? It was raining outside, a shitty night. And I kind of said, you know what? I think I'm done. So I took a 38 revolver, the Colt Detective Special, pulled the hammer back, walked over to the mirror and said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to see the whole show, you know, from beginning to end. And uh, that's when I said, this is a really bad idea. Put my finger there to dislodge the, the double, double action, mm -hmm. put it away. So how I dealt with PTSD was I became an expert on PTSD. It was relatively easy. Since so few people knew anything about it, I was able to actually uh, do some research 
get it published in the Washington Post, military medicine, and uh, testified before the United States Senate. I mean, I'm, so therefore I am an expert, right? And uh, so here's the thing. A couple of year, couple of years later, I'm married and I'm working at the Department of Labor as an investigator. And all of a sudden, I see this movie, The Deer Hunter. Mm-hmm. My wife and I went to see The Deer Hunter with some friends of ours. And uh, that night, I said, I said, you know what? I'm going to build a memorial with all the names of, of all the mm-hmm. guys who were killed mm-hmm. in the Vietnam War. And women who were killed in the Vietnam right. War on active duty of the U.S. Army. I want to do it. And uh, I had 2500 bucks, which my father left me. <laughs> we were not a high net worth family, but he left me this money. And uh, I told, I asked my wife for permission. And she said, I don't know, Jan, this sounds pretty crazy. And my boss at the Department of Labor says, Jan, you're, you're a GS7 at the Department of Labor can you tell me who your two senators are, who your congressman is? What do you know about fundraising? And I said, look, I just need a mental health day. He says, no, you need a mental health week. Why don't you take a week off, really look at that and think about your life? I came back and uh, I hired a lawyer, uh, got incorporated, got a couple of people to join the board, a couple of random people. And so now I'm ready. So it's now July of of 1979 and right now uh on the letterman show and these different night night talk shows they're talking about jan scruggs trying to build the vietnam veterans memorial what happens here's what happens this guy named john p wheeler the third very famous guy graduate of harvard graduate of yale graduate of west point he says we can figure out how to do this. Let me get let's put a t- let me put a team together. Get some other guys who were the guys who went to Harvard at, right out of West Point. Got some other guys, a guy named Arthur Mosley, a guy named Dick Radies. They had all been kind of classmates, and then we get Bob Kimmett involved. Uh, he was very crucial, and he said they said, "Look, this is a Harvard Business School problem. What do we need? We need a site. We need a design." We need money. We need a dedication. We had four steps in this. And if we do it right, everything right, on November 11, 1982, this memorial would be dedicated. <laughs> and we did everything right. We made a few mistakes. One mistake we did not make was the architectural design competition. We had the largest, this was the largest held in the history of Western civilization. And you can double check that three times if you want. I mean, even three times, four times bigger than the the Eiffel Towers contestants. <laughs> we did it, and we said, "Look, we want this memorial to be reflective and contemplative." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those were the two words: reflective and contemplative. Mm-hmm. Most of the designs were like miniature Lincoln memorials, and with a lot of curly cues and height. But we needed something that would use the the largeness of the other monuments there. The Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial are big. We needed something that would also be big, but not rising into the air, but more level to the ground. And Maya Lin did it. And this is one of the most famous and most loved memorials in the world. It is a place where 
Of course, the veterans and other people go, but it's really a place where 5.5 million tourists go from all over the world. It's just a great piece of architecture. And when you go to to uh, Europe and see some of these great monuments and uh, the Arc of Triumph, you say that it really touches my heart. And this uh, does the same thing. I was just there last week with some, some tourists from Spain. They were completely blown away by it. Well, and based on your experience and thinking about, about what you did uh, with this memorial, uh, what do you think, how do you think Americans should consider memorializing the sacrifices of veterans of our last two, three decades of conflict? Well, I, uh, I'm probably the right guy to ask about that. <laughs> that's, why, that's, why we pulled, that's why we pulled you onto the show. <laughs> See, 2015, I retired and I really didn't have anything to do. So I said, you know, here's what I can do. I can, I got some people together and, and, uh, I got General Petraeus involved. He's a really smart guy. And we had a couple lunches together. And the way he analyzes problems, you know, he's very methodical. And he says, I think it's probably too early to go for a memorial. Mm -hmm. But I think the time is right to get the site. Mm. Once you get the site, you can kind of build something for the site. Then I got some other people, you know, qualified like him. And I put together a plan. So what I did was just sort of, Announced it in the Army Times. Look, this is what is, needs to be done. I didn't say I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. I say what I need to do is, you know, find some veterans of global war and terror. We're going to get this memorial built. They deserve it. And uh, I was very affected. There was a guy who was a senior NCO named Joshua Wheeler, and he was killed in action by some of these ISIS guys. It really affected me. I, I don't know why, but I did it. And uh, so all of this publicity came out and here's a guy sitting in his helicopter in Afghanistan reading the army times on his iPhone. And he says, who's this guy, Jan Scruggs? He calls up a buddy of his. And next thing you know, we put a team together, a team of Iraq veterans and and Afghanistan veterans, and it's going to have a happy ending. They they got another three or four years. But uh, what do we need to do? It's got to be something dramatic. You know, there's something most wars have an end end to them. The war on terror does not have an end to it. Right. It just will keep going on and on and on, you know. And uh, so we need something that will attack the problem of, 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 of the, the permanence of this experience, of this military experience. But something good and patriotic. I'm just what I want to have happen is for these veterans of the war on terror to have a place to go to that will evoke the emotions that, that the Vietnam Veterans Memorial did and, uh, and will, at, will attract people. Mm-hmm. Like uh, this month, we or pretty soon, we're going to have Rolling Thunder, probably 300,000 motorcycles going around. So we need something like that. So they're on their way, and I've – good luck. Well, yeah. And, and, and this is what I see is the problem. You talk about how you know, a war that hasn't ended, it's always hard to know how do you memorialize something that's not over. It's also a challenge to memorialize something that doesn't have a happy ending, right? You know, what makes the Vietnam veteran memorial so appropriate and so powerful, one could argue, is it, it speaks to the sort of the, the, the ache of loss, of the frustration, the sadness. And how should we as an American society, I mean, this is a society that celebrates winners, right? How should we as an American society 
memorialize, remember, encourage, support veterans of conflicts that didn't turn out the way that we would want them to? Well, since uh, 1945, none of them turned out very well. Pretty much. Except for the invasion of Grenada, which I thought was absolutely brilliant because you could do your fighting and have breakfast at a nice restaurant. You know? That's pretty good call. <laughs> Panama. You could, yeah. use your, you could use your AT&T calling card to get go back to Britain yeah. to call it an airstrike. <laughs> yeah, maybe, uh, maybe just some sort of a design that just speaks of, you know, this is, there are tragic outcomes, but this is what we needed to do at the time. So let's separate the war from the warrior. That Mm -hmm. was our mantra. Mm -hmm. Let's do it for the people in Iraq and Afghanistan too, Mm -hmm. because these wars were never popular. They were never, most people just ignored them, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. They don't have the draft anymore. This is, you know, they, right. it's like these guys want to be firemen. They want to be policemen. So well, they can go fight these wars. That's kind of the general public's idea. Yeah. Well, and how did, based on your own experience, you come back from war, you got to, you know, everybody says, you know, thanks, Jan, or, or they don't say thanks, Jan. They just say, okay, Jan, you're not in the army anymore. Um, go start the rest of your life. Um, what kind of advice do you have for veterans coming back from conflict? You know, so what advice for veterans and advice for people who want to be supportive of those veterans? Yeah. First of all, one thing that's really important is to reach out to and have good relations with your family, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, things like that. Very important thing. Uh, have friendships. Uh, join a, a tennis club or a rifle club or something like that. And that that's enjoyable where you meet and interact with new people. Uh, that's very, very good. And uh, you have to remember that if you saw a lot of combat or, you know, were in an IED attack and there was a lot of that stuff, you may have PTSD. PTSD actually damages the frontal cortex of the brain and you have these little ACE inhibitors there that get interfered with. And it really doesn't necessarily go away. But what, what it will cause you is come, you'll have nightmares, constantly fearful. You're kind of waiting for something to happen, you know what I mean? Even mm-hmm. though nothing's going to happen. You're having flashbacks, things like that. You're not living a good life. So if you can just sort of uh, get treatment for it, I mean at the VA or the Mayo Clinic, whatever you want to do is good. Mayo Clinic's very interesting. Some of their data shows that one out of 11 people in America will be affected by PTSD. Females are actually more likely than males hmm. to get PTSD because they're, they're, they tend to be have sexual attacks on them. So, uh, you know, you tr- try to be a, a well-rounded person, but understand that if you feel depressed you might want to stay away from firearms. Just keep them locked up in the back or something. So, but but, but, uh, but yeah. I guess that's the, the the part that's the struggle, right? Is that to realize that if you are struggling with PTSD, that uh, that you're not alone, that there's nothing specifically wrong with you, right? That the the experience creates, you know, that, that there are lots of other people who are suffering as well. And I think this is what. You know, as as you know, it's civilian society struggles to figure out what to do, what to say. You know, it's not enough just to sort of wave at somebody and say, "Hey, you know, thank you for your service," but to think about what it is that we should be doing, uh, we as a society, to help heal the people that we send out to fight our war. Yeah, and remember, post-traumatic growth—that's uh, another component of this. And there's a 
a great guy. He's got in Boulder Crest. His name is Ken Falk, and mm-hmm. he was a, a Navy diver. Anyway, he started this uh, Boulder Crest, and and they they foster growth. They they get a, people who really graduate from this program who have PTSD. So it turns out they have a, a greater appreciation and a strengthening of their close relationships with people. That's what keeps them from being unglued. They tend to have more compassion, more altruism mm-hmm. than, than other people. Once they sort of recover, they want to give something back. So not everything that happens from PTSD is bad, but talk about a tough guy to get in touch with is uh, the, the, Navy, the Navy commander of uh, SEAL Team 4 in, in Afghanistan. He blew his brains out. Uh, he had, but And just a few days before then, he had talked to one of the medics and he said, look, I'm having some problems here, man. But I don't want you to tell anybody because, you know, I'm the commander of SEAL Team 4. And he goes and blows his brains out. So you got to make it easier for soldiers who are having these problems to go the chain of command without worrying. Right. And a lot of these special operations guys who are getting out right now have PTSD. And a lot of guys have this brain injury as well from these IEDs. Mm-hmm. No, and, and so the idea is you, is you don't need to be alone uh, we, and people should not be kept alone. They, they should be able to and be encouraged to communicate. We should be able to talk about this as a society. We should be able to talk about this as individuals. And I would say this is the beauty of a memorial. It's a place that brings people together so they can communicate, so they can talk, so they can share their pain. Um, and it's, you know, societies, you know, we, we demand a lot of the people who are supposed to defend us. Um, and the worst thing we can do is to lose the connection with them. And that's why it's so great that there are people like you, Jan Scruggs, who help to build those connections. And thanks so yeah. much for, for this conversation. My pleasure. And, uh, you know, people say, how did you do this? How did you do this? And I just say, did you ever see the Blues Brothers, Dan Aykroyd? I'm on a mission from God. I mean, it was in my mind, that was the whole thing. Like, God wants this built. Why did he have to pick me? But I have to do this. Well, you know, you, you, you made you made that deal back in the jungle, Jan. I'm sorry. Like that was, you know, I guess this is the cost. Well, yeah, it's better than being dead at age 19. Well, there you I mean, go. It just seems so unfair to me. Yeah. There you go. Well, well good luck. And I <laughs> certainly appreciate uh, being having the opportunity to do a podcast with uh, the United States Army. Thank you so much, Jan Scruggs, for joining us on A Better Peace. It's been great to have you. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and send us suggestions for future programs. Please subscribe to A Better Peace if you have not already. And after this conversation, how could you not want to subscribe to A Better Peace? And after you subscribe, please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice because that's how other people can find out about us. We're always interested in broadening this community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And so, Until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.